Chapter 12 of The Mirror of the Sea by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. The Mirror of the Sea, Chapter 12. Initiation. Ships! exclaimed an elderly seaman in clean shore togs. Ships! And his keen glance, turning away from my face, ran along the vista of magnificent figureheads that, in the late seventies, used to overhang in a serried rank the muddied pavement by the side of the New South Dock. Ships are all right. It's the men in em. Fifty hulls, at least, moulded on lines of beauty and speed. Hulls of wood, of iron expressing in their forms the highest achievement of modern shipbuilding, lay moored all in a row, stem to key, as if assembled there for an exhibition, not of a great industry, but of a great art. Their colours were grey, black, dark green, with a narrow strip of yellow moulding defining their sheer, or with a row of painted ports decking in warlike decoration their robust flanks of cargo carriers that would know no triumph but of speed in carrying a burden, no glory other than of a long service, no victory but that of an endless obscure contest with the sea. The great empty hulls with swept holds just out of dry dock, with their paint glistening freshly, sat high-sided with ponderous dignity alongside the wooden jetties, looking more like unmovable buildings than things meant to go afloat. Others, half-loaded, far on the way to recover the true sea physiognomy of a ship brought down to her load-line, looked more accessible. Their less steeply slanting gangways seemed to invite the strolling sailors in search of a berth to walk on board and try for a chance with the chief mate, the guardian of a ship's efficiency. As if anxious to remain unperceived amongst their overtopping sisters, two or three finished ships floated in low, with an air of straining at the leash of their level headfast, exposing to view their cleared decks and covered hatches, prepared to drop stern first out of the labouring ranks displaying the true comeliness of form which only her proper sea-trim gives to a ship. And for a good quarter of a mile from the dockyard gate to the farthest corner, where the old housed-in hulk, the President, drill-ship then of the Naval Reserve, used to lie with her frigate side rubbing against the stone of the quay, above all these hulls, ready and unready, a hundred and fifty lofty masts more or less held out the web of their rigging like an immense net, in whose close mesh, black against the sky, the heavy yard seemed to be entangled and suspended. It was a sight. The humblest craft that floats makes its appeal to a seaman by the faithfulness of her life, and this was the place where one beheld the aristocracy of ships. It was a noble gathering of the fairest and the swiftest, each bearing at the bow the carved emblem of her name, as in a gallery of plaster casts, figures of women with mural crowns, women with flowing robes, with gold fillets on their hair or blue scars round their waists, stretching out rounded arms as if to point the way, heads of men helmeted or bare, full lengths of warriors, of kings, of statesmen, of lords and princes, all white from top to toe, with here and there a dusky turbaned figure, bedizened in many colours, of some eastern sultan or hero, all inclined forward under the slant of mighty bowsprits, as if eager to begin another run of eleven thousand miles in their leaning attitudes. These were the fine figureheads of the finest ships afloat. But why, unless for the love of the life those effigies shared with us in their wandering impassivity, 
Should one try to reproduce in words an impression of whose fidelity there can be no critic and no judge, since such an exhibition of the art of shipbuilding and the art of figurehead carving, as was seen from year's end to year's end in the open-air gallery of the New South Dock, no man's eyes shall behold again. All that patient, pale company of queens and princesses, of kings and warriors, of allegorical women, of heroines and statesmen and heathen gods, crowned, helmeted, bareheaded, has run for good off the sea, stretching to the last above the tumbling foam their fair, rounded arms, holding out their spears, swords, shields, tridents, in the same unwearied, striving forward pose. And nothing remains but lingering, perhaps in the memory of a few men, the sound of their names, vanished a long time ago from the first page of the great London dailies, from big posters in railway stations and the doors of shipping offices, from the minds of sailors, dockmasters, pilots and tugmen, from the hail of gruff voices and the flutter of signal flags exchanged between ships closing upon each other and drawing apart in the open immensity of the sea. The elderly, respectable seaman, withdrawing his gaze from that multitude of spars, gave me a glance to make sure of our fellowship in the craft and mystery of the sea. We had met casually, and had got into contact as I had stopped near him, my attention being caught by the same peculiarity he was looking at in the rigging of an obviously new ship, a ship with her reputation all to make yet in the talk of the seamen who were to share their life with her. Her name was already on their lips. I had heard it uttered between two thick, red-necked fellows of the semi-nautical type at Fenchurch Street Railway Station, where, in those days, the everyday male crowd was attired in jerseys and pilot cloth mostly, and had the air of being more conversant with the times of high water than with the times of the trains. I had noticed that new ship's name on the first page of my morning paper. I had stared at the unfamiliar grouping of its letters, blue on white ground, on the advertisement boards, whenever the train came to a standstill alongside one of the shabby, wooden, wharf-like platforms of the dock railway line. She had been named, with proper observances, on the day she came off the stocks, no doubt, but she was very far yet from having a name. Untried, ignorant of the ways of the sea, she had been thrust amongst that renowned company of ships to load for her maiden voyage. There was nothing to vouch for her soundness and the worth of her character but the reputation of the building yard whence she was launched headlong into the world of waters. She looked modest to me. I imagined her diffident, lying very quiet, with her side nestling shyly against the wharf to which she was made fast with very new lines, intimidated by the company of her tried and experienced sisters, already familiar with all the violences of the ocean and the exacting love of men. They had had more long voyages to make their name in than she had known weeks of carefully tended life, for a new ship receives as much attention as if she were a young bride. Even crabbed old dockmasters look at her with benevolent eyes. In her shyness at the threshold of a laborious and uncertain life, where so much is expected of a ship, she could not have been better heartened and comforted had she only been able to hear and understand than by the tone of deep conviction in which my elderly, respectable seaman repeated the first part of his saying, Ships are all right. His civility prevented him from repeating the other the bitter part. It had occurred to him that it was perhaps indelicate to insist. 
He had recognised in me a ship's officer, very possibly looking for a berth like himself, and so far a comrade, but still a man belonging to that sparsely peopled after-end of a ship, where a great part of her reputation as a good ship in seamen's parlance is made or marred. "'Can you say that of all ships without exception?' I asked, being in an idle mood, because, if an obvious ship's officer, I was not, as a matter of fact, down at the docks to look for a berth, an occupation as engrossing as gambling and as little favourable to the free exchange of ideas, besides being destructive of the kindly temper needed for casual intercourse with one's fellow creatures. "'You can always put up with them,' opined the respectable seaman judicially. He was not averse from talking, either. If he had come down to the dock to look for a berth, he did not seem oppressed by anxiety as to his chances. He had the serenity of a man whose estimable character is fortunately expressed by his personal appearance in an unobtrusive yet convincing manner, which no chief officer in want of hands could resist. And, true enough, I learned presently that the mate of the Hyperion had taken down his name for quartermaster. We sign on Friday and join next day for the morning tide, he remarked, in a deliberate, careless tone, which contrasted strongly with his evident readiness to stand there yarning for an hour or so with an utter stranger. Hyperion, I said. I don't remember ever seeing that ship anywhere. What sort of a name has she got? It appeared from his discursive answer that she had not much of a name one way or another. She was not very fast. It took no fool, though, to steer her straight, he believed. Some years ago he had seen her in Calcutta, and he remembered being told by somebody then that on her passage up the river she had carried away both her horse-pipes. But that might have been the pilot's fault. Just now, yarning with the apprentices on board, he had heard that this very voyage, brought up in the downs, outward bound, she broke her shear, struck adrift and lost an anchor and chain. But that might have occurred through want of careful tending in a tideway. All the same, this looked as though she were pretty hard on her ground tackle, didn't it? She seemed a heavy ship to handle anyway. For the rest, as she had a new captain and a new mate for this voyage, he understood, one couldn't say how she would turn out. In such marine shore talk as this is the name of a ship slowly established, her fame made for her, the tale of her qualities and of her defects kept, her idiosyncrasies commented upon with the zest of personal gossip, her achievements made much of, her faults glossed over as things that, being without remedy in our imperfect world, should not be dwelt upon too much by men who, with the help of ships, wrest out a bitter living from the rough grasp of the sea. All that talk makes up her name, which is handed over from one crew to another without bitterness, without animosity, with the indulgence of mutual dependence, and with the feeling of close association in the exercise of her perfections and in the danger of her defects. This feeling explains men's pride in ships. Ships are all right, as my middle-aged, respectable quartermaster said with much conviction and some irony, but they are not exactly what men make of them. They have their own nature, they can, of themselves, minister to our self-esteem by the demand their qualities make upon our skill and their shortcomings upon our hardiness and endurance. Which is the more flattering exaction, it is hard to say, but there is the fact that in listening for upwards of twenty years to the sea-talk that goes on afloat and ashore, I have never detected the true note of animosity. 
I won't deny that at sea sometimes the note of profanity was audible enough in those chiding interpolations a wet, cold, weary seaman addresses to his ship, and in moments of exasperation is disposed to extend to all ships that ever were launched, to the whole everlasting exacting brood that swims in deep waters. And I've heard curses launched at the unstable element itself, whose fascination, outlasting the accumulated experience of ages, has captured him as it had captured the generations of his forebears. For all that has been said of the love that certain natures on shore have professed to feel for it, for all the celebration it had been the object of in prose and song, the sea has never been friendly to man. At most it has been the accomplice of human restlessness and playing the part of dangerous a better of worldwide ambitions. Faithful to no race after the manner of the kindly earth, receiving no impress from valour and toil and self-sacrifice, recognising no finality of dominion, the sea has never adopted the cause of its masters like those lands where the victorious nations of mankind have taken root, rocking their cradles and setting up their gravestones. He, man or people, who, putting his trust in the friendship of the sea, neglects the strength and cunning of his right hand, is a fool. As if it were too great, too mighty for common virtues, the ocean has no compassion, no faith, no law, no memory. Its fickleness is to be held true to men's purposes only by an undaunted resolution and by a sleepless, armed, jealous vigilance in which perhaps there has always been more hate than love. Odi et amo may well be the confession of those who consciously or blindly have surrendered their existence to the fascination of the sea. All the tempestuous passions of mankind's young days, the love of loot and the love of glory, the love of adventure and the love of danger, with the great love of the unknown and vast dreams of dominion and power, have passed like images reflected from a mirror, leaving no record upon the mysterious face of the sea. Impenetrable and heartless, the sea has given nothing of itself to the suitors for its precarious favours. Unlike the earth, it cannot be subjugated at any cost of patience and toil. For all its fascination that has lured so many to a violent death, its immensity has never been loved as the mountains, the plains, the desert itself have been loved. Indeed, I suspect that, leaving aside the protestations and tributes of writers who, one is safe in saying, care for little else in the world than the rhythm of their lines and the cadence of their phrase, the love of the sea, to which some men and nations confess so readily, is a complex sentiment wherein pride enters for much, necessity for not a little, and the love of ships, the untiring servants of our hopes and our self-esteem, for the best and most genuine part. For the hundreds who have reviled the sea, beginning with Shakespeare in the line, more fell than hunger, anguish, or the sea, down to the last obscure sea-dog of the old model, having but few words and still fewer thoughts, there could not be found, I believe, one sailor who has ever coupled a curse with the good or bad name of a ship. If ever his profanity, provoked by the hardships of the sea, went so far as to touch his ship, it would be lightly, as a hand may, without sin, be laid in the way of kindness on a woman. The love that is given to ships is profoundly different from the love men feel for every other work of their hands 
the love they bear to their houses, for instance, because it is untainted by the pride of possession, the pride of skill, the pride of responsibility, the pride of endurance there may be, but otherwise it is a disinterested sentiment. No seaman ever cherished a ship, even if she belonged to him, merely because of the profit she put in his pocket. No one, I think, ever did, for a shipowner, even the best, has always been outside the pale of that sentiment, embracing in a feeling of intimate, equal fellowship the ship and the man, backing each other against the implacable, if sometimes dissembled, hostility of their world of waters. The sea, this truth must be confessed, has no generosity, no display of manly qualities, courage, hardihood, endurance, faithfulness, has ever been known to touch its irresponsible consciousness of power. The ocean has the conscienceless temper of a savage autocrat spoiled by much adulation. He cannot brook the slightest appearance of defiance, and has remained the irreconcilable enemy of ships and men ever since ships and men had the unheard-of audacity to go afloat together in the face of his frown. From that day he has gone on swallowing up fleets and men without his resentment being glutted by the number of victims, by so many wrecked ships and wrecked lives. Today, as ever, he is ready to beguile and betray, to smash and to drown the incorrigible optimism of men who, backed by the fidelity of ships, are trying to wrest from him the fortune of their house, the dominion of their world, or only a dole of food for their hunger. If not always in the hot mood to smash, he is always stealthily ready for a drowning. The most amazing wonder of the deep is its unfathomable cruelty. I felt its dread for the first time in mid-Atlantic one day, many years ago, when we took off the crew of a Danish brig homeward bound from the West Indies. A thin, silvery mist softened the calm and majestic splendour of light without shadows, seemed to render the sky less remote and the ocean less immense. It was one of the days when the might of the sea appears indeed lovable, like the nature of a strong man in moments of quiet intimacy. At sunrise we had made out a black speck to the westward, apparently suspended high up in the void behind a stirring, shimmering veil of silvery-blue gauze that seemed at times to stir and float in the breeze which fanned us slowly along. The peace of that enchanting forenoon was so profound, so untroubled, that it seemed that every word pronounced loudly on our deck would penetrate to the very heart of that infinite mystery born from the conjunction of water and sky. We did not raise our voices. A waterlogged derelict, I think, sir, said the second officer quietly, coming down from aloft with the binoculars in their case slung across his shoulders. And our captain, without a word, signed to the helmsman to steer for the black speck. Presently we made out a low, jagged stump sticking up forward, all that remained of her departed masts. The captain was expatiating in a low, conversational tone to the chief mate upon the danger of these derelicts, and upon his dread of coming upon them at night, when suddenly a man forward screamed out, "'There's people on board of us, sir! I see them!' in a most extraordinary voice, a voice never heard before in our ship, the amazing voice of a stranger." It gave the signal for a sudden tumult of shouts. The watch below ran up the forecastle head in a body. The cook dashed out of the galley. Everybody saw the poor fellows now. They were there. 
and all at once our ship, which had the well-earned name of being without a rival for speed in light winds, seemed to us to have lost the power of motion, as if the sea, becoming vicious, had clung to her sides. And yet she moved. Immensity, the inseparable companion of a ship's life, chose that day to breathe upon her as gently as a sleeping child. The clamour of our excitement had died out, and our living ship, famous for never losing steerage way as long as there was air enough to float a feather, stole, without a ripple, silent and white as a ghost, towards her mutilated and wounded sister, come upon at the point of death in the sunlit haze of a calm day at sea. With the binoculars glued to his eyes, the captain said in a quavering tone, They're waving to us with something aft there. He put down the glasses on the skylight brusquely and began to walk about the poop. A shirt or a flag, he ejaculated irritably. Can't make it out. Some damn rag or other. He took a few more turns on the poop, glancing down over the rail now and then to see how fast we were moving. His nervous footsteps rang sharply in the quiet of the ship, where the other men, all looking the same way, had forgotten themselves in a staring immobility. "'This'll never do,' he cried out suddenly. "'Lower the boats at once. Down with them.' Before I jumped into mine, he took me aside as being an inexperienced junior for a word of warning. "'You look out as you come alongside that she doesn't take you down with her. You understand?' He murmured this confidentially so that none of the men at the fall should overhear, and I was shocked. Heavens, as if in such an emergency one stopped to think of danger, I exclaimed to myself mentally, in scorn of such cold-blooded caution. It takes many lessons to make a real seaman, and I got my rebuke at once. My experienced commander seemed in one searching glance to read my thoughts and my ingenuous face. What you're going for is to save life, not to drown your boat's crew for nothing, he growled severely in my ear. But as we shoved off, he leant over and cried out, It all rests on the power of your arms, men. Give way for life. We made a race of it, and I would never have believed that a common boat screw of a merchantman could keep up so much determined fierceness in the regular swing of their stroke. What our captain had clearly perceived before we left had become plain to all of us since. The issue of our enterprise hung on a hair above that abyss of waters which will not give up its dead till the day of judgment. It was a race of two ships' boats matched against death for a prize of nine men's lives, and death had a long start. We saw the crew of the brig from afar working at the pumps, still pumping on that wreck which already had settled so far down that the gentle low swell over which our boats rose and fell easily without a check to their speed, welling up almost level with her head rails, plucked at the end of broken gear swinging desolately under her naked bowsprit. We could not, in all conscience, have picked out a better day for our regatta had we had the free choice of all the days that ever dawned upon the lonely struggles and solitary agonies of ships since the Norse rovers first steered to the westward against the run of Atlantic waves. It was a very good race. At the finish there was not an oar's length between the first and second boat, with death coming in a good third on the top of the very next smooth swell, for all one knew to the contrary. The scuppers of the brig gurgled softly altogether when the waters rising against her side subsided sleepily with a low wash, as if playing about an immovable rock. 
of bulwarks were gone fore and aft, and one saw her bare deck low-lying like a raft, and swept clean of boats, spars, houses, of everything except the ring-bolts and the heads of the pumps. I had one dismal glimpse of it as I braced myself up to receive upon my breast the last man to leave her, the captain, who literally let himself fall into my arms. It had been a weirdly silent rescue, a rescue without a hail, without a single uttered word, without a gesture or a sign, without a conscious exchange of glances. Up to the very last moment those on board stuck to their pumps, which spouted two clear streams of water upon their bare feet. Their brown skin showed through the rents of their shirts, and the two small bunches of half-naked, tattered men went on bowing from the waist to each other in their back-breaking labour, up and down, absorbed, with no time for a glance over the shoulder at the help that was coming to them. As we dashed, unregarded, alongside, a voice let out one, only one, hoarse howl of command, and then, just as they stood, without caps, with the salt-drying grey in the wrinkles and folds of their hairy, haggard faces, blinking stupidly at us their red eyelids, they made a bolt away from the handles, tottering and jostling against each other, and positively flung themselves over upon our very heads. The clatter they made tumbling into the boats had an extraordinarily destructive effect upon the illusion of tragic dignity our self-esteem had thrown over the contests of mankind with the sea. On that exquisite day of gently breathing peace and veiled sunshine perished my romantic love to what men's imagination had proclaimed the most august aspect of nature. The cynical indifference of the sea to the merits of human suffering and courage laid bare in this ridiculous, panic-tainted performance extorted from the dire extremity of nine good and honourable seamen revolted me. I saw the duplicity of the sea's most tender mood. It was so because it could not help itself, but the awed respect of the early days was gone. I felt ready to smile bitterly at its enchanting charm and glare viciously at its furies. In a moment, before we shoved off, I had looked coolly at the life of my choice. Its illusions were gone, but its fascination remained. I had become a seaman at last. We pulled hard for a quarter of an hour, then laid on our oars waiting for our ship. She was coming down on us with swelling sails, looking delicately tall and exquisitely noble through the mist. The captain of the brig, who sat in the stern-sheets by my side with his face in his hands, raised his head and began to speak with a sort of sombre volubility. They had lost their masts and sprung a leak in a hurricane, drifted for weeks, always at the pumps, met more bad weather. The ships they sighted failed to make them out, the leak gained upon them slowly, and the seas had left them nothing to make a raft of. It was very hard to see ship after ship pass by at a distance, as if everybody had agreed that we must be left to drown, he added. But they went on, trying to keep the brig afloat as long as possible, and working the pumps constantly on insufficient food, mostly raw, till yesterday evening, he continued monotonously, just as the sun went down, the men's hearts broke. He made an almost imperceptible pause here, and went on again with exactly the same intonation. They told me the brig could not be saved, and they thought they had done enough for themselves. I said nothing to that. It was true. It was no mutiny. I had nothing to say to them. 
They lay about aft all night, and still as so many dead men. I did not lie down. I kept a lookout. When the first light came, I saw your ship at once. I waited for more light. The breeze began to fail on my face. Then I shouted out as loud as I was able, Look at that ship! But only two men got up very slowly and came to me. At first only we three stood alone, for a long time, watching you coming down to us and feeling the breeze drop to a calm almost. But afterwards others too rose, one after another, and by and by I had all my crew behind me. I turned round and said to them that they could see the ship was coming our way, but in this small breeze she might come too late after all, unless we turned to and tried to keep the brig afloat long enough to give you time to save us all. I spoke like that to them, and then I gave the command to man the pumps. He gave the command, and gave the example too, by going himself to the handles, but it seems that these men did actually hang back for a moment, looking at each other dubiously before they followed him. (laughs) <laughs> he broke out into a most unexpected, imbecile, pathetic, nervous little giggle. Their hearts were broken so. They had been played with too long, he explained apologetically, lowering his eyes, and became silent. Twenty-five years is a long time. A quarter of a century is a dim and distant past. But to this day I remember the dark brown feet, hands and faces of two of these men whose hearts had been broken by the sea. They were lying very still on their sides on the bottom boards between the thwarts, curled up like dogs. My boat's crew, leaning over the looms of their oars, stared and listened as if at the play. The master of the brig looked up suddenly to ask me what day it was. They had lost the date. When I told him it was Sunday, the 22nd, he frowned, making some mental calculation, then nodded twice sadly to himself, staring at nothing. His aspect was miserably unkempt and wildly sorrowful. Had it not been for the unquenchable candour of his blue eyes, whose unhappy, tired glance every moment sought his abandoned, sinking brig as if it could find rest nowhere else, he would have appeared mad. But he was too simple to go mad too simple with that manly simplicity which alone can bear men unscathed in mind and body through an encounter with the deadly playfulness of the sea or with its less abominable fury. Neither angry, nor playful, nor smiling, it enveloped our distant ship growing bigger as she neared us, our boats with the rescued men and the dismantled hull of the brig we were leaving behind in the large and placid embrace of its quietness, half lost in the fair haze, as if in a dream of infinite and tender clemency. There was no frown, no wrinkle on its face, not a ripple. And the run of the slight swell was so smooth that it resembled the graceful undulation of a piece of shimmering grey silk shot with gleams of green. We pulled an easy stroke, but when the master of the brig, after a glance over his shoulder, stood up with a low exclamation, my men feathered their oars instinctively, without an order, and the boat lost her way. He was steadying himself on my shoulder with a strong grip, while his other arm, flung up rigidly, pointed an annunciatory finger at the immense tranquillity of the ocean. After his first exclamation, which stopped the swing of our oars, he made no sound, but his whole attitude seemed to cry out an indignant, Behold! I could not imagine what vision of evil had come to him. I was startled 
and the amazing energy of his immobilised gesture made my heart beat faster with the anticipation of something monstrous and unsuspected. The stillness around us became crushing. For a moment the succession of silky undulations ran on innocently. I saw each of them swell up the misty line of the horizon, far, far away beyond the derelict brig, and the next moment, with a slight friendly toss of our boat, it had passed under us and was gone. The lulling cadence of the rise and fall, the invariable gentleness of this irresistible force, the great charm of the deep waters, warmed my breast deliciously like the subtle poison of a love potion. But all this lasted only a few soothing seconds before I jumped up too, making the boat roll like the veriest landlubber. Something startling, mysterious, hastily confused was taking place. I watched it with incredulous and fascinated awe as one watches the confused, swift movements of some deed of violence done in the dark. As if at a given signal, the run of the smooth undulation seemed checked suddenly around the brig. By a strange optical delusion, the whole sea appeared to rise upon her in one overwhelming heave of its silky surface, where in one spot a smother of foam broke out ferociously. And then the effort subsided. It was all over, and the smooth swell ran on as before from the horizon in uninterrupted cadence of motion, passing under us with a slight friendly toss of our boat. Far away where the brig had been, an angry white stain undulating on the surface of steely grey waters, shot with gleams of green, diminished swiftly, without a hiss, like a patch of pure snow melting in the sun. And the great stillness, after this initiation into the sea's implacable hate, seemed full of dread thoughts and shadows of disaster. Gone, ejaculated from the depths of his chest my bowman in a final tone. He spat in his hands and took a better grip on his oar. The captain of the brig lowered his rigid arm slowly and looked at our faces in a solemnly conscious silence, which called upon us to share in his simple-minded, marvelling awe. All at once he sat down by my side and leant forward earnestly at my boat's crew, who, swinging together in a long, easy stroke, kept their eyes fixed upon him faithfully. No ship could have done so well, he addressed them firmly, after a moment of strained silence, during which he seemed with trembling lips to seek for words fit to bear such high testimony. She was small, but she was good. I had no anxiety. She was strong. Last voyage I had my wife and two children in her. No other ship could have stood so long the weather she had to live through for days and days before we got dismasted a fortnight ago. She was fairly worn out, and that's all. You may believe me, she lasted under us for days and days, but she could not last forever. It was long enough. I am glad it is over. No better ship was ever left to sink at sea on such a day as this. He was competent to pronounce the funereal oration of a ship, this son of ancient sea folk whose national existence, so little stained by the excesses of manly virtues, had demanded nothing but the merest foothold from the earth. By the merits of his sea-wise forefathers and by the artlessness of his heart, he was made fit to deliver this excellent discourse. There was nothing wanting in its orderly arrangement, neither piety nor faith, 
nor the tribute of praise due to the worthy dead with the edifying recital of their achievement. She had lived, he had loved her, she had suffered, and he was glad she was at rest. It was an excellent discourse, and it was orthodox too in its fidelity to the cardinal article of a seaman's faith of which it was a single-minded confession. Ships are all right. They are. They who live with the sea have got to hold by that creed first and last. And it came to me as I glanced at him sideways that some men were not altogether unworthy in honour and conscience to pronounce the funereal eulogium of a ship's constancy in life and death. After this, sitting by my side with his loosely clasped hands hanging between his knees, he uttered no word, made no movement till the shadow of our ship's sails fell on the boat when, at the loud cheer greeting the return of the victors with their prize, he lifted up his troubled face with a faint smile of pathetic indulgence. This smile of the worthy descendant of the most ancient sea-folk, whose audacity and hardihood had left no trace of greatness and glory upon the waters, completed the cycle of my initiation. There was an infinite depth of hereditary wisdom in its pitying sadness. It made the hearty bursts of cheering sound like a childish noise of triumph. Our crew shouted with immense confidence, honest souls, as if anybody could ever make sure of having prevailed against the sea, which has betrayed so many ships of great name, so many proud men, so many towering ambitions of fame, power, wealth, greatness. As I brought the boat under the falls, my captain, in high good humour, leant over, spreading his red and freckled elbows on the rail, and called down to me sarcastically out of the depths of his cynic philosopher's beard, So you have brought the boat back after all, have you? Sarcasm was his way, and the most that can be said for it is that it was natural. This did not make it lovable, but it is decorous and expedient to fall in with one's commander's way. Yes, I brought the boat back all right, sir, I answered, and the good man believed me. It was not for him to discern upon me the marks of my recent initiation. And yet I was not exactly the same youngster who had taken the boat away, all impatience for a race against death with the prize of nine men's lives at the end. Already I looked with other eyes upon the sea. I knew it capable of betraying the generous ardour of youth as implacably as, indifferent to evil and good, it would have betrayed the basest greed or the noblest heroism. My conception of its magnanimous greatness was gone, and I looked upon the true sea, the sea that plays with men till their hearts are broken and wears stout ships to death. Nothing can touch the brooding bitterness of its heart. Open to all and faithful to none, it exercises its fascination for the undoing of the best. To love it is not well. It knows no bond of plighted troth, no fidelity to misfortune, to long companionship, to long devotion. The promise it holds out perpetually is very great, but the only secret of its possession is strength, strength the jealous, sleepless strength of a man guarding a coveted treasure within his gates. End of chapter 12